welcome to episode three of Inside Investing, a joint initiative brought to you by Cufflinks and Livewire Markets. My name's James Marley, I'm from Livewire Markets. And this is Graham Han from Cufflinks. On the agenda this week, um, I attended a presentation looking at some near-death experience for startups and which ones survive. And both James and I will be looking at some of the drivers behind the recent rally in small caps. And if you like me and don't know too much about Bitcoin, I've got the article to fill the gap in your knowledge. And I'll also share with you a few highlights from my recent CIO interview with Anton Tagliaferro, who's a member of the Fund Managers Hall of Fame. And as always, we'll have some of the quirkier things that we've found in the markets in the past week. So let's get right on into it. Graham, maybe you could tell us about the presentation that you attended this week. Yeah, really interesting one from an Israeli law firm called uh, Yigal Arnon, which specialises in private equity, venture capital and startups. They're actually in Australia presenting to law firms on the way they've been doing business for startups in the last 10 years, where they don't bill them initially when the startup hasn't got much money, but when they're more successful, that's when they actually um, bill them. But of course, if you're going to take that approach, you've got to develop some techniques for recognizing which are going to be the successful startups. So what they were sharing is through many near-death experiences, some of the rules that they've um, developed. And I'm just going to mention three of them. The first one is that they want the founder team to be self-sustaining because they know that at some point in their startup life, there's probably going to be some financial problems and you can't always rely on hiring staff to solve your problems. So, you know, they like to see an entrepreneur, a manager of the business, and a sort of technical person as well. So self-sustaining. A really interesting point I've never heard before is find out what the people working in the business are doing as well as the startup. Because many of them are moonlighting on the startup at, at night and doing their normal job during the day. And a a lot of um, employers have rules that anything that's developed while you're an employee of that company belongs to that company. So it it might be that you think you've developed a startup with some IP, but it might be, you know, your Westpac, Commonwealth Bank, Telstra or something who you work for actually has a claim over that IP. And And the third one was you need rules about how to access the founder capital because there's a good chance somewhere along the line there'll be a problem with the founder, or not necessarily a problem, they might just sort of leave the business, and if they own a chunk of it, um, what happens to that capital? Lots of interesting warnings about um, how, how to manage uh, uh, the startup business. So James, what, what interesting conversation have you had in the last week or so? Well, the conversations that I'm going to highlight today stem from an article that was published on Cufflinks and subsequently on Livewire about the performance of the microcap sector on the Australian market. It was from independent investment research, and the quarterly numbers showed that microcaps had delivered about 9% return in one quarter and, um, you know, against 1% for large caps. And... They highlighted 18 or so funds that were participating in in this really strong rally. And I'm speaking with a number of managers 
that I thought were microcap managers and I actually said, oh, I noticed that you were left off this list. And the fund manager made the point that he said, I was very happy not to be on that list right. because I'm quite concerned about being tainted with um, the brush of being a microcap manager. I pressed him on why and he said, it's because I think that when things turn for the worse, what people don't realise is how much liquidity comes out of that part of the market. Oh, yes, right. And that, you know, it becomes a real problem when you have a lot of new funds in there, they all own the same names, and the liquidity goes out of the microcap sector and literally evaporates. And so I had that first conversation, and then literally a week later, I had almost the identical conversation with another manager who said, listen, we're really cautious on microcaps. Um, I thought it was just interesting that everyone's always focused on where the hot returns are coming from but two managers just calling out those risks which I think it's always just a good reminder for people to keep in mind what they're getting into in that part of the market so yeah. that stood out for me for the past week. Yeah interesting they both said that and look uh, we've been covering this rally in the small ordinaries uh, index uh, which has been pretty extraordinary in the last three months and we uh, just looking um, back at articles we published last week, we had an article um, from Simon Conn of IML and a lot of managers at the moment are, seem to be underperforming because they're missing some of the big movers of what Simon calls the concept stocks. And these names will be familiar to people because they've been in the news and you know he called out people like um, Aconex, Afterpay, NextDC, WiseTech, A2 Milk, Bellamy's, Blackmore's, Costa, and some of the resource stocks. And just identifying these 13 small companies, they've generated half the return in the small audit index. So if, if you're the sort of manager who picks stocks more on fundamental values rather than this sort of momentum story, and you miss some of these big movers, then not only do you underperform, but when you, when you don't perform as well, that's when people potentially draw the money out from your fund. And as Simon pointed out, not only do these, these 13 concept or momentum companies have a PE of over 40 times, but they are expected to generate an aggregate free cash flow of minus 76 million in the next year. The point that some of these sort of fundamental managers are, are making is that you know, prudent long-term investors need to watch the sort of companies that they are buying because when, when the market starts to focus more on sort of fundamentals and that they call out three stocks, GWA, Sky City, Southern Cross, who they think are better long-established, better quality companies, that when the market turns back to that sort of stock, um, then um, the, the momentum stocks will underperform. I read that article and uh, when I found a few statistics that I thought would help to put into context some of the challenges of investing in, in the small cap sector, just for listeners to understand what that space looks like. And I'll throw these numbers at you. So there are about 1,350 companies listed on the ASX that have a market cap of less than 250 million. Now people's definition of small cap rate you know, varies, but um, there's a stat for you. 
of those 1,350 companies, 75% of them are loss-making. Oh, right. <laughs> and only 14% of them pay a dividend. So I think it just paints a picture of how narrow the universe of companies with solid fundamentals, as Simon would say, really is. And I think the other interesting statistic to pull out of that is that 62% of those companies are either involved in resources or technology. So very concentrated, and then when it comes to fundamentals, quite narrow. However, one sector that actually does look on track to deliver some earnings growth, and this came from a piece that we did um, looking at some of the sectors on small caps, is companies exposed to investment in mining and construction. And David Allingham from Ely Griffiths Group uh, pulled out some, some interesting data points that support his view. In October, the NAB Business Condition Survey hit the highest level since it commenced in 1997. Is that right? Which is also the year I did my HSC. <laughs> um, he also included a great chart, and this is specifically to the mining expenditure, which showed the long-term average for mining equipment's share of capex. And the key takeaway from this is that it's been running well below its long-term average since 2013. So in that sector, there has been significant underinvestment for the best, better part of five years. And so that's definitely one sector where fund managers that we're speaking to are saying we think that there's, a, there's some real fundamentals supporting the, the rally that's been going on in mining services stocks. Well, talk about a sector that hasn't been uh, underinvested in, in the last year or two. I, I saw an interesting piece that you had on, on Bitcoin, James. Yeah, it's not, it's not the typical sort of article that we would expect to get on Livewire. It was published by Jordan Alicio, and it's called The Future of Money, Bitcoin, Dollars or Gold. And the thrust of the article really was not to speculate around whether Bitcoin was in a bubble or not. It was really to sort of question, like, could Bitcoin really operate as a currency? What are the characteristics of it? How useful would it be um, for people? And I think there's just a... It's, it's, it's got a long report attached to it, but there's a couple of interesting points that I thought that I'd raise. If you type the term Bitcoin is a bubble into Google, you would get over 31 million results, <laughs> um, which goes to show how much people have been writing about um, Bitcoin as being in a bubble. The rally, as everyone knows, has been, has been quite significant and it continues to surge on. The demographic that's getting interested in owning Bitcoin is people... Uh, between the ages of 25 and 34 years old, and they own 40% of, um, of Bitcoin, or they're 40% of Bitcoin. I actually had an Uber driver last week who owned one Bitcoin, um, and I think this might have been a good proportion of his, of his, uh, of his reserves. Well, it's interesting. He, he owns one Bitcoin. 96% of Bitcoin is held by just 4% of the Bitcoin wallets that are out there. And that's one of the issues that Jordan raised is that there might be a lot of people dabbling with small amounts of, of Bitcoin, but the, the bulk of Bitcoin is already owned by a very small percentage of the people that have got Bitcoin wallets. But I think one of the big issues that he raised, which was interesting to me, was that even to just go and make, uh, take one of the most basic transactions, such as you know buying a car or even converting it into currency, or if you were to do a property, you couldn't use Bitcoin to do that you know, today and, and it fundamentally, you know, provides a bit, a bit of an issue around, um, you know, how Bitcoin becomes part of the, uh, the economy going forward. But listen, it's a, it's a big meaty PDF report. I'm not going to go into the, the full details of it now, 
but that's something that people might enjoy reading. We'll put the link below the podcast. It's not a topic I know a lot about, and this was quite an accessible way to get into it. Graham, I think you've dug something out of the archives for us, something from deep on the cufflinks library. <laughs> we have, James. I'd like to put uh, some, something from the past uh, that I thought was a particularly strong article. And this is from Chris Cuff, who, as people know, uh, is who Cufflinks is named after. But he wrote an article a few years ago that was called My 10 Biggest Investment Management Lessons. And given that Chris you know, is former CEO of Colonial First Aid and Challenger and until recently was the chair of Uni Super, it's interesting to look at the lessons he's learned from 30 or 40 years in the market. I won't go into all 10 of them. I'll just call out a, a few of them. Um, he said, Past performance is the best guide to future success. Now, how many times do you read people saying, you know, past performance is no guide to the future? And he said, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, you look at the past performance. He says, never buy a bad stock because the price is low. You know, go for a, go for a quality stock. When picking a fund manager, watch the level of funds under management. He doesn't like a small cap manager to have more than about a billion dollars under management because you can't find the stocks in in Australia if you're allocating that much. Even large cap in Australia, he he talks about a cap of you know maybe six or seven billion. And he says, don't be worried about paying performance fees. Um, he thinks that you know if you're rewarding the manager for doing well and you've done well, then that you shouldn't be hung up about that. But another interesting point is that business risk guides a lot of investing and you see this with some managers who don't want to depart too much away from the index they don't want to lose their job so they hug the index a little bit maybe outperform the index and you you really want someone who's going to as Chris says swing the bat right if you're going to employ someone with active fees make sure that they're doing active management so we'll put a link to that article uh, interesting one from the from the archive before we get yeah. into your next article, yeah. I remember reading that Chris Cuff article, and one of the things that I think most people struggle with when trying to engage with finance is that all of the jargon and terminology that goes along with financial products and how they're promoted and how they're sold. Yeah. And one of the things that I really like about this article and about how Chris presents it is it's really like a no BS yeah. way. Like he. He really calls it as he sees it, and I think it's one of like it's definitely one of the more refreshing, you know, lists of hey, think about it this way, and it, a lot of it makes sense. It might depart from what you're used to hearing or being pitched by manufacturers of financial products, but it's um, it's got a nice fresh take on it, and that's that's one of the things that I really liked about that article. Oh, great! Thanks for that. Yeah, he's not coming from any vested interest. He's just going on his experience. Now, talking about experience, so your CIO interview series is going well. What have you got this week? So I had the opportunity to sit down with Anton Tagliaferro, who I suspect most people would have an inkling of who he is. He's been managing money for over 30 years. He started in 1986, I believe it was, and he's the, the chief investment officer at Investors Mutual. I actually bumped into him at the Morningstar conference and he was tearing his hair out telling me about how awful and dreadful markets were. So I invited him to come in and tell me a bit about why 
he was so upset about the state of oh, markets one, right yeah. now. And so a couple of points that he, he raised was that he's talking about the fact that there's a lot of money sloshing around still, a lot of excess liquidity, so valuations are continually looking unattractive for a value manager. But the interesting thing that he brought up was the impact that short-term news flow was having on day-to-day share prices. So a, a piece of news that would be relatively immaterial and he used um, the recent quarterly result from Commonwealth Bank as an example, saw the share price rise 3% on the day. Yeah. Now he was rolling his eyes back saying, it's a big move, that's a big move for a very large company on what was relatively benign news. And he, he pulled out this quote, which I think is fabulous. He says, of the five or six billion or so that's traded on the, on the ASX each day, at least half of all the daily activity on the share market is done by people or things who don't understand what they're buying or selling. Right. And he's talking about algorithmic and you know, quant funds and all this sort of stuff. And he's talking about the fact that the noise in the market has been dialed up quite dramatically, um, which makes it challenging each day because you see share prices move and big reactions, and, and as humans, we have an emotional response to that. So I thought that was interesting. For him, the opportunity is big movements on the downside allow him to add to positions, and, and on, on, when it's on the upside, he can, he can sell a few away. But he used this, um, this term, I asked him about what are some of the constants in investing that haven't changed, and he said, the share market is a great place for patient investors to make money over the long term. It can also be a very good place to lose money quickly if you're trying to make a quick buck. Yeah. So um, some, some, some interesting commentary, good advice from someone that's been around a really long time. And the interview goes on to talk about a few specific situations where he feels that the short-term news has impacted stocks negatively and provided some opportunities. In particular, we go into some detail on Telstra um, and also Maya, which is obviously um, a stock that's in the news and under huge amount of pressure. So that's going to be released this Saturday on Livewire. Okay, good one. Look forward to that. Graham, you've got a, um, an interesting and quite a, a detailed piece coming up on Cufflinks this week. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, I, uh, we've got Jeremy Cooper um, who's talking about re- retirement. Jeremy ran the Cooper Review a few years ago. And the point he's trying to make is that running your superannuation in the retirement phase is different than managing your money in the accumulation phase. In the accumulation phase, you norm- phase, you normally um, measure what you do by the performance and perhaps the risk of your portfolio. But there's a fundamental change when you're in retirement because for the first time you effectively have what he calls a direct financial lifeline into the fund that's providing you with the income to live on. And so you really need to focus on regular dependable income to fund your lifestyle because you're not earning money anymore at that time. And he says that there are sort of two extremes of what a retirement portfolio might look like. One is a very conservative, risk-free, might just be government bonds, um, short-term government bonds where your capital is, is protected. The other extreme is what he calls probability-based, so you might have equities, and there's a probability that um, you, some of your money you know, may be adversely affected by a market fall, and you have to decide where you are on that continuum. And he's really calling for the advice industry and for people in retirement to think about 
where they want to be in retirement. He makes the point that although only 20% of Australians have a financial advisor, 60% of retirees do. And it's a sort of conversation, this is a conversation that um, retirees and their advisors should be having. So I won't go into it. He talks about sequencing risk, inflation, longevity risk, drawdown rates, and the bequest which become issues as you get older. But the main message is that you need different measures of success in your retirement saving than you do when you're accumulating money. So, you know, you probably have a younger audience than we do, James. Uh, maybe they should refer this one on to their parents or something like that. But, you know, we both have people who are in retirement phase and it's worth looking at some of these ideas. We're getting a bit serious there, James. So what have you got that's a bit quirky that you've seen in the last, in the last week or two? Well, this is quirky, but it's also serious. And right. it brings together a number of the topics that we've talk, talked about today. And it was an advertisement for a financial product that I, I, I picked up. And it, it sort of rang a few alarm bells for me. And we've talked, you've talked there about the issues for people needing income for retirement, so people wanting yield. And we also talked earlier today about um, the hot money in some of the, the small parts of the market, the temptation to chase that. This product kind of bundles it all up together, but it's, um, it's a bit of a worry for mine. So this product promotes itself as an alternative to term deposits, but there's some really important differences. Uh, the funds get invested into a basket of pre-IPO stocks. So you put, give your money to them and they go and put it into some stocks that haven't listed yet. And in return, they hang on to your money for a period of time and advertise a distribution rate which is comparable to some of the term deposits. So we're talking 3 to 6% depending on how long you leave the money with them. The slight difference here, or the major difference here, is that there is no guarantee that you will get your money back. So if these IPOs don't go, there is no capital protection. Yeah, this is a so, risky end of the market, that's for sure. Yeah, so you've got capped upside, 3 to 6% upside, maybe, no guarantee, and unlimited downside. And it just, you know, it's been compared to term deposits, so people associate term deposits with capital protection, capital guarantee, banks, that sort of stuff. Um, and this product is anything but that and uh, it's got some pretty nifty marketing around it and it was just a bit of a you know given that there's some hot things going on around the market at the moment I just thought it raises a bit of a red flag or something that, that that didn't pass the sniff test for mine yeah well people can you know, go into IPOs with their eyes open but let's not talk about it having any relationship to you know term deposits and and income look I was reading some interesting uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics stats on tourism numbers into Australia. Now, this is clearly a massive export industry for us, but also highly relevant to a lot of listed companies. You know, obviously Sydney Airport, Flight Centre, Ardent Leisure, the you know the hotel industry. The number one source of tourists into Australia is still New Zealand, but rapidly catching up with the Chinese, and. Only 5% of people in China have a passport, and only 1% of those have been to Australia. So although we do sometimes worry about our exposure to China, we particularly think about um, uh, resources, this does seem to have fantastic upside when you consider how few people have been here. 
But the, the bit I thought was really surprising was the New Zealanders are first, Chinese are second. The average expenditure by a New Zealander coming to Australia is 2,100. The average expenditure by a Chinese person coming to Australia is 8,400, right? Mm. Four times as much. The, the article I read sort of coming up with theories of why that's the case uh, is that hardly any of the Chinese are backpackers and you know they come here on serious packages and a lot of the New Zealanders are and they often stay with family and friends so there's a there's a lot more behind the numbers how much are, how much are people actually spending um, so tourism future looks pretty strong based on those sorts of numbers yeah some f uh, fabulous stats and easy to see the upside there isn't it it is yeah well listen that wraps up our podcast inside investing episode three I'd like to Thank everybody for tuning in. Links to all the articles that Graham and I have mentioned today will be listed underneath the podcast on our respective websites. And we welcome any feedback or questions in the comments section on both the Cufflinks and Livewire websites. And we'll both be back next week. Thanks, James. Great. Thanks, Graham. Great Cheers. to catch up. Mm.